Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hey everyone, this is an episode from Cognitionis, like the word cognition and then add an IS to it. One of the supporting acts for this year's Study Smarter Fest for the USMLE Step 1. You can find him on YouTube, multiple videos covering things like the 25 most high-yield facts in endocrinology for Step 1. Note that this content was originally a video, but if you hear references to the video, just know you can find the uh, original content on his channel, and you can find even more audio versions of Cognitionis content on the Audio QBank app by Inside the Boards. Hey everyone, in this video we are going to do a clinical overview of kidney function. You know, what exactly is the kidney doing? So the kidney is responsible for the maintenance of a constant extracellular environment. So the environment outside of your cells, the kidney um, will maintain the electrolytes, the excretion of waste products um, such as urea, uh, creatinine, and uric acid. We'll talk about all of those today. <clears throat> and it will also adjust the um, urinary excretion of water to match your intake of water. Um, there's also hormones that the kidney can secrete. Um, these hormones participate in um, systemic and renal hemodynamics. So we have renin, prostaglandins, bradykinin, erythropoietin, um, vitamin D is... Um, has some hydroxylation that occurs in kidneys. So there's a lot of things that happen in the kidneys. We're not going to talk about all that today. We're really going to focus on the clinical aspect of um, how you assess kidney function. But um, these are all important things to uh, keep in mind. And I'll, I'll probably talk about them in a future video. So um, here we go with the glomerulus. So the glomerulus, you have your afferent arterial here, bringing blood into the glomerulus. And then you have um, your glomerulus here with your Bowman's capsule. <clears throat> and then this blood, um, after uh, being filtered, is going to come out through the efferent arterial, okay? Um, so for this video, that's really what you want to um, kind of keep in mind. And, and just remember, <clears throat> the glomerulus forms an ultrafiltrate of the plasma, um, and so it's it's allowing, uh, you know, electrolytes and that kind of thing to get filtered through, but it's um, ideally preventing, you know, like red blood cells or proteins from getting through based on the size and charge membrane of the glomerulus. Now, the glomerular filtration rate, or GFR, is basically the sum of all the nephrons in our body, right? We have, we have um, hundreds, thousands of these nephrons in our kidneys, and the sum of all those filtration rates is the GFR. The normal values of a GFR depend on a lot of different factors. They're, they're different for everyone. Factors include age. Um, you know, if, if we're older, the GFR might be lower, um, sex, body weight, um, and many other factors. But a normal GFR is between 120 to 130 mils per minute per meter squared. Now, I'm not going to put the units in for a lot of this stuff <clears throat> throughout the video because I think that it makes it more complicated. But um, in general, for the general units, a normal GFR is 120 to 130. 120 is more normal in women. 130 is more normal in men. And sometimes we just say a normal GFR is around 100 just to make the math easy when we're talking about um, kidney injury. So 
keep that in mind. So here we have, um, you know, what happens when the GFR starts to decline. And a lot of times, um, you know, if you have a declining GFR, if it starts to get lower, it's under 100, it's under 80, it's under 60. Um, these GFRs are associated with some kind of kidney problem, either an acute kidney injury or a chronic kidney injury. Um, and the GFR has prognostic implications in patients with chronic kidney disease. So we actually use the GFR to stage patients that have uh, chronic kidney disease. Okay. And I also wanted to just cover one more quick thing here, anatomy wise. We, we have our, uh, an image of our nephron. Now recall, so here's the glomerulus. You have your afferent arterial coming in. Um, here's your glomerulus. Your ultrafiltrate is going to come through into the tubules. And then uh, going back to the blood here, the efferent arterial is going to take um, the uh, post ultrafiltrate, uh, ultrafiltrated blood out. And it's going to uh, take that blood out here to this um, formation of blood vessels. This is called the vasorecta. Okay, that kind of comes down around the, the tubule. Now in the tubule, again, we have the glomerulus, which is going to have the ultrafiltrate, and then we're going to have our proximal convoluted tubule where a ton of reabsorption occurs um, and some secretion, which we'll talk about here. And then this is going to kind of uh, come down, and we're eventually going to form our, our loop of Henle and our distal convoluted tubule up here. <clears throat> and finally, we have our collecting duct, and then this urine flows into the renal papillae, which eventually will lead to the ureter, <clears throat> bladder, etc., and you get your urine. Okay, so... Um, with all that being said, we're going to focus again on the clinical aspect here. So I want to call one thing to your attention, and that is that, you know, your GFR is not proportional to the size of the kidney. Now, where this comes into play is let's say that you have uh, someone who has a kidney removed. The other kidney will uh, eventually compensate for the, the removed kidney, right? So how does it do that? Well, it, it has it undergoes hyperfiltration. So it's going to filter more through that solitary kidney. There's adjustments in the solute and water reabsorption um, in the functioning nephrons. And so <clears throat> you would expect, you know, if I took out someone's kidney, if I took out one kidney, you would expect the GFR for that patient to drop in half. Well, it doesn't actually do that, um, especially over the long term, because the other kidney will adapt for... Um, for that one loss in kidney um, based on what we have here. Okay, so just kind of keep that in mind. So that's one thing that I think trips people up when you see a patient with solitary kidney. The GFR is not completely cut in half. Now, the other thing about the GFR is when we're talking GFR, there's the actual GFR, right? And then there's what we think the GFR is, which is what we're estimating. So we're estimating a GFR. Now, if you want to find the actual GFR, how can you do it? Well, you can measure it, okay? But it's not practical. Clinically, it's really expensive. It involves using, um, you know, things that, um, like we said, are just not practical. They're not easy to get, um, and they're not uh, widely used. So we tend to estimate the GFR clinically, Okay, now the GFR, usually we estimate it with serum markers, one of which is creatinine, <clears throat> and we'll talk about how we do that very thoroughly in this video. Um, but what are some situations where you would want to know the actual GFR? So there's, there's some very specific situations where you would want to actually go through the work of measuring the GFR. The first one is if you are doing chemotherapy or you're adjusting the dose of like a toxic med that has a very narrow therapeutic index. In those patients, you would um, want to know the exact GFR because it really matters. Um, in other cases, if you are considering donating a kidney, you have to know the exact GFR before we move the kidney to another person. And also, um, if you are in fact looking to um, do some kind of transplant, at some point, we should measure the GFR, okay? Now, if we were to measure the GFR, which again, let's say it's not really practical, 
how would we do that? Well, if you wanted to measure the GFR, you think back to your glomerulus and, and your nephron, you'd have to have a substance that's freely filtered at the glomerulus, so it goes through the glomerulus, um, and it can't, that substance cannot be reabsorbed by the kidneys and it can't be secreted into those tubules because if either one of those things are happening we don't actually know what was being filtered because the end product in the urine is not going to be the same as what we started with at the glomerulus so i'll say that one more time you know when if we're trying to figure out exactly what is being filtered in other words we're trying to find the measurement of the gfr we have to have a substance that is not secreted into the nephron and it can't, that substance can also not be reabsorbed because if it does either one of those things, it will throw off the amount of substance that's in the kidney tubule. And, it, and when, we get to, when it gets to the urine, it won't be the same amount of substance that was originally filtered. Okay, so that's an important concept. The other factors you want to consider here when you're thinking of what kind of substance we would want to use to measure the GFR, you would want to use a substance that's obviously non-toxic, right, to the kidneys, and a substance that isn't metabolized by the kidney. If the substance goes into the kidney and then it's metabolized and then it comes out as something else, then you're not measuring the GFR. It's going to throw off your numbers, right? So <clears throat> those are the, the features we're looking for in an ideal filtration marker, something that's going to tell us what the GFR is. Now, if the filtration marker is ideal, if it's something that meets all that criteria, it literally gets filtered, nothing changes, and it comes out in the urine, then we can say that whatever is filtered or the filtered load is going to be equal to the rate of urinary excretion, right? That makes sense, right? Whatever's filtered is going to be equal to the rate of that substance's urinary excretion. <clears throat> so we can we call this the clearance. So we say whatever the concentration of that substance is in the urine times the flow of the urine divided by the serum concentration of that substance is equal to the clearance. So the way to kind of wrap your head around this is to think, okay, well, whatever's in the urine times how, how fast it's coming out of the urine, right? That's in the numerator, divided by how much total is in my serum, that's equal to the clearance. It's telling me what amount of the substance from my blood is being cleared through the kidney, right? This is what's being cleared through the kidney. This is the total amount in your blood. That's the clearance, okay? So that's how we calculate the clearance. Urinary concentration times urinary flow rate, divide all that divided by the serum concentration of the substance. And again, if the substance is an ideal filtration marker, meets our criteria, then that will tell us the GFR, okay? So the GFR um, is in this second equation here, and this is all going to come together in a second. So the GFR times the serum concentration is equal to urine concentration times urine flow rate, right? If it's if it's a ideal filtration marker, then that's what we said because the clearance of the um, substance will be equal to the GFR. In other words, <clears throat> the way to explain this is simply an ideal filtration marker, whatever is cleared out in the urine is equal to what was filtered. In other words, the GFR. So we can say that the clearance of a substance is equal to the GFR. So where does this come in, okay? So the gold standard ideal filtration marker is inulin. It's a substance that's filtered at the glomerulus, but whatever's filtered is excreted. We don't have to worry about it being metabolized. We don't have to worry about it being reabsorbed. There's no inulin secreted into the tubules, so it makes a great ideal filtration marker. And it, with inulin, we know that the GFR is equal to the clearance. So if we can calculate the clearance of inulin, we can figure out the exact... GFR. Again, not practical, right? It's expensive. We have your short supply, difficult to assay. It requires all of these things here, most of which you don't have to know, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just not easy to do. Now, 
<clears throat> there are e other substances that are a little bit easier to use. Um, I listed them here, iothalamate, hexol, and, and so on. So there's some other options. Inulin's the gold standard. These other options aren't quite as good as inulin, um, but that's what we work with. If we're trying to measure the exact GFR, if you have a chemotherapy patient, you know, transplant patient, whatever it is, this is um, the gold standard. <clears throat> now, in all reality, we don't use that very often. A lot of times we will just estimate the GFR. So if we're going to estimate the GFR, we are going to try to measure a substance in the blood, which is creatinine. Okay, so we're going to kind of use creatinine. And, and the one way we can do it is we can look at the clearance of creatinine, right? Just like we looked at the clearance of inulin. And so um, there's, there's a few different equations. We're gonna, we won't you know, memorize these equations or anything, but we'll just talk about what they mean in a minute. But that's essentially how we estimate the GFR. So we don't have inulin on hand. Creatinine is very inexpensive to measure. It's, it's very ideal. So we look at creatinine. Now, what is the relationship between creatinine and a GFR in one of our patients? So um, before I say that, actually, let me just tell you what creatinine is because I don't think I talked about this. So creatinine is derived from... Um, skeletal muscle, so the metabolism of creatine in skeletal muscle forms creatinine, and you can also get it from uh, dietary meat intake, particularly protein. It's released into uh, circulation at a constant rate, and it's filtered across the glomerulus, just like sodium and, and potassium and electrolytes and all that stuff. It's filtered through the glomerulus, and, uh, and you'll notice here, remember when we were talking about ideal filtration markers, we said an ideal filtration marker, just like inulin, is not reabsorbed or metabolized by the kidney. Neither is creatinine. So that's why it's, it, it's a good substance to use to estimate the GFR. Here's the catch, though. Here's the big thing. Creatinine is secreted into the proximal convoluted tubule. That's very important. So what that means is creatinine is not an ideal filtration marker, Okay. You're probably saying, well, why do we use it then? Well, because it's kind of like the best thing that we have that's practical. But unlike inulin, it's secreted. So because it's secreted, it won't tell us exactly what's being filtered. It'll actually be off a little bit. Okay, so 10 to 40% of the total creatinine, which, which is a pretty big range here, 10 to 40% of the total creatinine is secreted. Okay, this should be secreted, not excreted. But you get the idea. Now, the relationship between GFR and creatinine is that as the GFR goes up, right, the creatinine would come down because you'd be filtering more of it, right? If the GFR goes down, then the creatinine would go up because it's being released into circulation at a constant rate. So if someone has kidney disease and their GFR is going down, their some creatinine should be going up, right? So if we look at in reality, Things are a little bit different, but this graph represents kind of what is actually happening. So on the x-axis, you have some creatinine. On the y-axis, you have your GFR. Okay, we said a normal GFR is like 120 to 130, okay? And so you can see at 120 to 130, if we look down the creatinine, we have like a creatinine of about, I don't know, 0.4 maybe, 0.3. <clears throat> okay, so let's just say the GFR is at 100. Creatinine is maybe 0 0.4, 0 0.5. Okay, what happens if we cut the GFR in half? So if I cut my GFR in half from 100 and I go down to 50, so 50 is about 0.7. So notice that my creatinine just about doubled when I, when I cut the, um, the GFR in half. What happens if I cut the GFR into a quarter? So let's say if I go down to 25. Now my creatinine went up exponentially to about 
let's see, what is it? Maybe 2.12. So when I cut the GFR in half from 100 to 50, the creatinine doubled. And when I cut it from 100 to 25, it went up by four, uh, yeah, about four about five times what I was at before. So anyway, my point is, is that there's an exponential relationship here. Now, the other thing that's important is that if you have a healthy kidney, okay, a very small rise in the creatinine, if you look at this, a very small rise in the creatinine is a pretty big drop in the GFR. So let's say you have a normal creatinine baseline of like 0.6, okay? At 0.6, your GFR is about 60. And let's say that you go, you know, creatinine spikes to 0.8. Well, now your GFR just dropped to about 45, okay? So that's a pretty big drop in the GFR for just a small change in the creatinine. If you have advanced kidney disease or CKD, chronic kidney disease, a huge increase in the creatinine might only be a small change in the GFR. And the thing is, once you, what this is saying is once you get way out here in creatinine, so you, you know, if you're in, in a hospital, you might see a patient with a creatinine of 8, 10, 12, you know, I've seen 16. So if you, when your creatinine gets all the way out here, you can see the GFR is not really changing. Look, it's pretty flat once you get out here. So when the creatinine goes from 8 to 10, the GFR might only change 1 or 2, you know, percent from normal. Whereas when we went from 0.4 to 0.6 or 0.6 to 0.8, there's a huge change. There's 15 to 20 points of change in the GFR, okay? So that's something to keep in mind. Now, there's also some factors we're not talking about that I'll touch on in a second, but that's the concept of, of, of uh, the creatinine GFR relationship, which is very important. Now, creatinine measurements, um, typically, it vary completely based on the person, just like the GFR. So in men, you know, they say that the mean value, <clears throat> 1.13, women 0.93, but it's very different for everyone. So you have to take into consideration how old is your patient? Are they male, female? What are their muscle? What's their muscle mass like? What are they eating? Are they a bodybuilder? They take creatine supplements. You know, there's a lot of things to keep in mind. Um, you know, a, a creat so remember creatinine is, is broken down from skeletal muscle. So in a bodybuilder, if you have a creatinine at 1.5, that could be your baseline. That could be completely normal. But a creatinine at 1.5 in an elderly female who has almost no muscle mass, that's very concerning. This might that might be stage three kidney disease. You know, it might be something very serious. So um, you have to keep everything in mind. And there's a lot of other factors here too. There's you know people that are vegan. This will be affected by this, right? Because they're not taking in any dietary meat. People with amputations or malnutri malnutrition, excuse me, or muscle wasting. Those are all things that that can be affected here. Now, when we're talking about creatinine, remember creatinine we said is not completely like inulin because it does something inulin doesn't do. It's too, it's secreted into the proximal convoluted tubule. So let's look at the implications of this. Let's say you have a patient, they have an acute kidney injury. Something just happened to their kidney, their kidney is damaged. Let's say their GFR drops um, from, you know, let's say their normal is like 100, 120 and drops to 60 or drops to 80. Okay. And we measure, we know this because we measured it with inulin. Okay. So let's say we know the actual, this is the actual GFR. But, ironically enough, even though their GFR dropped from, you know, 100 or 120, whatever their normal is, down to 60 to 80, it's a pretty big drop, dropped about in half, let's just say their serum creatinine only goes up by 0.1. How can you explain that change? Okay. And the re way you can explain it is because you have to remember, creatinine is secreted into the proximal convoluted tubule. So, if there's an injury to the kidney and the GFR drops and you're not filtering a lot of creatinine, it starts to build up in your blood, right? Then that creatinine is going to 
get tubularly secreted. So you're going to get more tubular secretion of creatinine so that it can balance out the fact that your GFR dropped so much. So try and kind of wrap your head around that. So it's this is almost like a backup mechanism when this GFR drops acutely to main, try and maintain your normal creatinine. But what will eventually happen? Eventually, you will saturate that tubular secretion of creatinine, and the creatinine will eventually increase to reflect the GFR, unfortunately. Okay, you can only tubularly secrete so much of the creatinine. Now, um, there is there are some drugs that inhibit this secretion, uh, this tubular secretion of creatinine, particularly trimethoprim, uh, sulfamethoxazole, just the trimethoprim, um, or also known as Bactrim, the antibiotic, very commonly prescribed, uh, inhibits the tubular secretion of creatinine. So it can cause uh, your creatinine to go higher and your GFR might compensate by hyperfiltrating, okay? Um, and uh, cemetidine, the H2 blocker, also does this, okay? So patients on these drugs, they can see a reversible rise in their creatinine, um, sometimes as high as up to 0.4 to 0.5. So something to keep in mind if you see a patient on one of those drugs. Now, uh, let's just look at a case here and kind of put this all together. So you have a 54-year-old male with baseline serum creatinine of 0.8, okay? So that sounds pretty normal. He has a decline in his true GFR from 130 at baseline to 80. So that's a pretty big decline. It looks like an acute kidney injury. His serum creatinine would be expected to rise by about 1.5 using the GFR serum creatinine relationship. Okay. But his actual rise on his labs show a creatinine of 1.1. So we would expect this guy to be well over 2 in terms of his creatinine because we would expect to see a rise of about 1.5. So 1.5 plus 0.8. Yeah, we expect him to be well over 2, but he his, he barely has any rise. He only has a rise to 1.1. What What's the story? So 1.1 appears to be in the normal range of his creatinine values. His tubular secretion of creatinine would blunt his initial rise in creatinine. So if this guy comes into your clinic and he has a creatinine of 1.1 and you saw him three months ago and his creatinine was 0.8, you might think everything is fine, right? And this is where you have to take the history, the physical, you know, you know, understand kind of what's going on with him. And, uh, you know, it should be concerning because um, that you can be in a situation where you have an acute kidney injury and that rise in creatinine is blunted by the tubular secretion of creatinine, okay? So this is a clinical example to kind of put that together. So look at a second case. 54-year-old male, again, presents with a serum creatinine of six, okay? His baseline is four, so this is someone who obviously has some kind of chronic kidney disease. Um, he has a decline in his true GFR from 15 at baseline to 10. So a five decrease in GFR has a huge implication on his creatinine. So again, small change in the G GFR at these really high creatinine levels um, can have a huge impact on the creatinine. And so remember the formula, GFR times serum creatinine is is got a, is equal to some constant, right? If I increase the GFR, the creatinine should come down. If I increase creatinine, the GFR should come down. So here he had a baseline of four with an EG, uh, GFR of fifteen, and to keep that equal, um, his you know if his GFR goes down by five, his creatinine is going to go up by two. So the point of this is not to get lost in the math and all that. The point of it is when you have large changes in the creatinine at really high values, there's really minimal changes in these already extremely low GFRs, okay? So patients in CKD that, you know, are bouncing between a four and a six or a six and an eight, their GFR is really not changing. It's really low to begin with, okay? All right, so <clears throat> end-stage renal disease, ESRD, that's what it stands for. So this is when someone with kidney disease kind of gets to the very end 
of uh, their GFR. So now this is someone who has a GFR less than 15. This is really bad. They're usually on dialysis, okay? Um, the point that I wanted to make here about these, these patients that, um, you know, their kidneys aren't working, um, what they can sometimes have, they can have a, a lower than would be expected creatinine concentration. And the reason for that is these patients have uh, overgrowth of intestinal bacteria and they make an enzyme called um, creatinase. And this breaks down the creatinine in the body. So sometimes these end-stage renal disease patients can have, you know, uh, a creatinine of 3 or 2.5 if this gets bad enough. So it's just something to kind of keep in mind. The creatinine doesn't always have to be extremely high for you to have a really low GFR. There's other factors that can affect it. There's also things that can artificially increase the creatinine. So it can make the creatinine look really bad and make you think, wow, there's really a kidney problem here when there isn't uh, per se. So um, when you're in DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, you can have a buildup of ketones, right? Acetoacetate is one of those. Bilirubin can do this if you have hyperbilirubinemia. And certain drugs like cefoxetin and flucytosine can also artificially increase the creatinine. Now, in terms of creatinine clearance, so we talked about clearance before. It's basically how much is getting cleared through the urine out of the total amount that's in the blood. So we use creatinine clearance to try and kind of determine what the estimated GFR is. Even though this isn't as good as inulin, it's kind of the best thing we have practically speaking. Now we have to keep in mind, like we said earlier, that about 10 to 40% of creatinine is tubular secreted. So 10 to 40% of the creatinine will not go through this glomerulus, but rather it will be uh, secreted into this proximal convoluted tube. It will bypass the GFR here and it will go right in here. Okay, and when we measure the urine, we're going to get not only the GFR, all the filtered creatinine, but we're also going to get the creatinine that was uh, secreted. So, again, no creatinine is reabsorbed or metabolized in the kidney. You know, just like inulin, it's, it doesn't do this, which helps us get a better depiction of the GFR. And if we ignore the uh, the secreted creatinine that goes into this proximal tubule, if we just pretend that, you know, for a second that, okay, let's just not worry about that, then we can say that the filtered creatinine is basically equal to the formula that we, we looked at earlier. And that formula was that GFR, in other words, creatinine clearance, is equal to the urine creatinine times the urine flow rate, right? This is how much is getting output through the urine divided by the total serum creatinine. That's going to tell us our clearance of creatinine which if we assume that you know there is no tubular secretion, we're just going to pretend there's not for a second here, we can say that's equal to the GFR. And this is why this is an estimated GFR. It's not completely accurate because we're not taking into account the tubular secreted creatinine. We're just kind of pretending that tubular secreted creatinine doesn't exist, and we're just using this formula to get us as close as we can. So again, it's an imperfect formula for creatinine clearance, and it tends to overestimate the GFR. And you might say, well, why does it overestimate the GFR? Remember that when we're measuring this urine creatinine, that urine creatinine is not only the filtered creatinine from the GFR, but it's also going to be the secreted creatinine. So that's going to increase the numerator when we calculate the creatinine clearance. Okay, so that's why it's going to be the uh, calculated creatinine clearance formula is going to be higher. Estimated GFR is going to be higher than the true GFR because it's also going to have all the creatinine that's tubular secreted. When the true GFR right, is just what's happening at the glomerulus. And that's why when we use inulin, we don't have to worry about this tubular secretion. We can just get the true GFR. Okay. The urine creatinine includes the tubular secreted creatinine, right? This is what I just said. 
uh, the numerator includes that, that's why it's higher. So the formula tends to exceed the true GFR. So the way that we do this clinically is we do a 24-hour urine collection. We get uh, the data on the urine creatinine and urine flow rate and all that. And we have a serum creatinine, and so we can calculate the creatinine clearance and then determine an estimated GFR. Um, so, for example, if we had a 60-kilogram female, her serum creatinine is 1.1, creatinine clearance is 100. Here's her urine flow rate. We can calculate the clearance. We just plug it into the formula here. Um, you know, you got to watch your units a little bit. And we can clean it up, and we can see that. This is pretty amazing, actually. So um, we're actually clearing 76 milliliters per minute of creatinine. If you think about that, or 109 liters a day of creatinine. So, And everybody's going to be different, right? These numbers are going to be a little different. But in general, I mean, the average person is clearing close to 100 liters of creatinine a day. And that's that's pretty amazing. If you think about 100 liters, I mean, that's that's a lot of creatinine. Okay. So some things to consider. So again... Um, the creatinine clearance is going to represent more of the upper limit of what the true GFR will be. Remember, it'll over, kind of over-predict it a bit, um, again, because of the tubular secretion that we talked about. So the question is, can we do anything to correct for this creatinine clearance? Because we're kind of over-predicting it. When we, when we do a 24-hour urine collection, yeah, we're going to over-predict the GFR when we calculate the clearance. So theoretically, based on what we've talked about so far, we could administer... Um, trimethoprim or cimetidine, and you might say, well, why would we want to do that? Well, you could do it because it inhibits the tubular secretion of creatinine, and if you inhibit the tubular secretion of creatinine, you would, you would again, make it so that you're just measuring the GFR, and it would make it more accurate, right, theoretically. But that's not done clinically because the results are still difficult to interpret and how much of the creatinine is being inhibited, and then you start giving people antibiotics just to measure GFR. It just doesn't make sense, okay? So that's why we don't do it. But theoretically, for academic purposes, yes, that would actually improve your measurement of the GFR. Okay, so Eventually, what happened uh, many years ago is that we wanted to try and calculate the creatinine clearance before we had some of the tests that we have now and, and so on and so forth. So we said, well, let's, there was a, a few studies that were done, but, um, you know, just to, to make it simple, some of these studies didn't take into account a lot of the uh, diseases that we face today, like diabetes, obesity, it didn't take into account a lot of um uh, you know, didn't take account different races and things like that. So this is one of the first equations, the Cockcroft-Galt equation. And you don't, I wouldn't ever memorize these things because you can just look them up online, but you should know what the equation takes into account. It takes into account age, weight, um, male, female. And um, it made an assumption that the uh, lower, the creatinine is lower in older age, which in general is true. And it said that the creatinine is higher with higher weight um, and the creatinine is less in women. So a lot of this was kind of imperfect because of the populations they used. And, you know, just for one example, really quickly here, you know, creatinine is a reflection of muscle mass. So if you say that the creatinine is higher with higher weight, um, you know, today we face so much obesity. And when this equation came out, the obesity was not on the rise like it is today. And so I think they just assumed that higher weight meant more muscle. But today we know that, you know, just because someone weighs more doesn't necessarily mean that they're a bodybuilder. And, um, Obesity is not associated necessarily with a higher creatinine. It is associated with comorbid conditions like diabetes, which, you know, potentially could be associated with a higher creatinine. But it just made a lot of assumptions, and um, it overestimates the creatinine clearance by about 10 to 40%, okay? And here's the equation up here. You can see it includes age, lean body weight, uh, serum creatinine, and then if you're a female, you uh, multiply the equation by 0.85 to adjust for the creatinine clearance. Later on, another equation came out. Another study was done. 
And uh, we just call it the MDRD equation. And it's obviously a lot more complicated here. You have all these uh, exponents here that factor in age and, again, um, male, female, uh, race. So this one actually was um, found to uh, be more accurate than the cockcroft Galt equation. And finally, there was a, a more recent study that was done. The CKD-EPI um, equation was developed, and this tends to perform better at higher levels of GFR. So when the GFR is really high, it tends to uh, kind of uh, distance itself from the other two equations. And this one has subgroups defined by sex, race, diabetes, transplant status, um, just Overall, this equation was shown in major meta-analyses to result in more accurate risk prediction for adverse outcomes compared to the other uh, equations. So this is kind of the best equation overall, um, albeit maybe the most complicated equation, but it's the preferred equation for estimating the GFR. And it's good that you know these three equations, okay? Now, the limitations in all of these equations that are used to estimate the GFR are uh, pretty vast, okay? So... Um, for example, if you have uh, diabetics with high GFR, we just said that, you know, these equations don't function well with this population. The CKD-EPI is probably the best one for these higher GFRs, um, but specific ethnic groups have um, are usually uh, show some variability with these equations, such as Asians, um, pregnant women, because their volume status are going to have their creatinine is going to be very different than a woman who isn't pregnant. And then we talked about morbidly obese, amputees, someone that's taking uh, creatine supplementation. So these equations... And I don't want to say fail when we have this population, but they're less accurate. And when you start dosing things for these patients based on their GFR, that's where this gets a little tricky. So in these populations, what can you do to get a more accurate assessment of the GFR? The practical answer to that question is we can do 24-hour urine samples to measure the creatinine clearance, right? So we don't have to just plug, you know, all their information into a formula and try and figure out the GFR. We can just say, hey, look, we're just going to do a urine sample, for a 24-hour urine sample. I'm going to see what your urine creatinine is, your serum creatinine, and then I'm going to calculate the creatinine clearance. And remember, that will overestimate it, you know, by 10 to 40%. Now, the other answer is, if we're not being practical here for a second, or it's someone that is a chemotherapy patient or whatever it is, uh, or they have to have a transplant, then we can talk about inulin, right? Or another substance that's only filtered that will give you the actual, the gold standard, the actual uh, GFR, okay? Out of those equations, so you have the, the cockcroft Gulf the uh, MDRD and the CKD-EPI, what equation is used when you're dosing drugs, like when companies make their you know, recommendations? Believe it or not, it's the Cockcroft-Galt. And we said this is kind of the worst equation overall in terms of its accuracy. So then why is it used to dose drugs? Well, you have to remember that uh, the first study, um, or this was the first of those three that came out. So it was like the original study, and all the original recommendations by the US FDA was made off this, kind of off this formula. And so um, most studies that were done were used, you know, for drugs, were using this formula. And so for patients with acute or chronic kidney disease, the um, Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes uh, 2011 update recommends that you use a more accurate uh, method for GFR evaluation rather than limiting it to this, to this formula. So they're kind of recommending more of the CKD-EPI formula, but this is actually the formula that the drug companies use now, believe it or not. It's that original formula. And um, if another thing to kind of keep in mind, if you're dosing 
you know, a drug for one for a patient, and let's say that it's a patient that you know is uh, in the bottom five percent of height and weight, or the top five percent of height and weight of you know patients that uh, you see. In those cases, you can adjust for the the GFR uh, or adjust for their size by using this formula, where you take the estimated GFR that you calculated using you know whatever formula you used or creatinine clearance, whatever it is, and you can multiply it by their body surface area. Uh, and divide that by 1.73, and that will give you the um, a closer estimate to their GFR based on their body surface area. So that's something to keep in mind if you're ever in that situation and you're thinking, you know, I didn't really account when I when I did this calculation with the Cockcroft Galt or the CKD Epi, I didn't account for this this the size of the patient. You can adjust for that using this formula here, and these are all online on like WebMD and that kind of thing, or on MD Calc, excuse me. Okay, so. Uh, last couple things. So the relationship, and because you're going to probably think about this, right? You're always looking at the BUN. What does the BUN have to do with anything, right? I have the creatinine. I have the BUN. Well, again, BUN is the blood urea nitrogen. And just to review, it measures the amount of nitrogen in your blood that comes from waste products uh, of urea. Uh, comes from the waste product urea, excuse me. So urea is made when protein is broken down in your body. It's made in the liver, which is important, and it's excreted via the urine, which is also important. So the BUN, just like the creatinine, it varies inversely with the GFR in general. Not always, but in general, it varies inversely with the GFR. But we don't really use it as much. So why don't we use the BUN then? Well, the reason we don't use it is because there there's other factors that can actually uh, change the BUN rather than just the GFR, okay? And um, we'll go through those here. So variables that affect the BUN. So what's going to affect the BUN? Well, we just said the GFR will inversely affect it. If the GFR goes up, the BUN goes down. If the GFR goes down, the BUN goes up. But there's a lot of things that can affect the rate of urea production. So a high-protein diet will increase BUN, just like creatinine. But other things will also affect it. If you have a hemorrhage or a GI bleed, for example, those will increase the BUN. Trauma will increase the BUN. If you put somebody on steroids, glucocorticoid therapy, that will increase the BUN. If someone has liver disease, it will decrease the BUN. Why is that? Well, we just talked about where the urea is uh, synthesized in the liver. This is an important one here. Volume depletion will affect uh, the BU1 as well. So recall, um, and actually I don't know if I mentioned this, but urea is reabsorbed in the proximal tubule mostly, but like most things. If you ever had to guess where something is reabsorbed, just guess proximal tubule in a question because that's where most things are reabsorbed. Now when you have volume depletion, you have more reabsorption of sodium and water, right? Well, that actually causes urea to be Reabsorb. It's kind of like they say water follows salt. Well, urea is going to follow both of them. And when that happens, the B1 is going to go up because, you know, volume depletion is going to cause more urea reabsorption because you're going to have more sodium and water reabsorption. That's going to cause the B1 to go up, but the creatinine is really not going to change much, initially at least. And so that's why if you have someone that's volume depleted, we say they have an increase in their B1 to creatinine ratio because the BUN goes up, the creatinine doesn't change as much. And we sometimes say this is a reflective of decreased renal perfusion. Or when we're talking about acute kidney injury, we say this is a pre-renal um, thing we look for. If you say to someone, hey, this person is decreased renal perfusion or they're pre-renal, we say, well, what's the BUN creatinine ratio? If it's really high, greater than 20, we say, yeah, this person, this is an indicator potentially that this person is pre-renal. So um, one other thing, since we're talking about urea, what are some considerations for the clearance of urea? So urea, we just said, can be reabsorbed by the proximal tubule, or so with volume depletion. And the question is, would urea clearance overestimate, underestimate, or accurately estimate the GFR? 
And you have to keep in mind what we just said. It's reabsorbed by the proximal tubule. So if something is reabsorbed, it's going to underestimate the, um, the GFR, right? Because it's reabsorbed. Just like creatinine overestimates the GFR because it's secreted in the proximal tubule, urea is the opposite. It underestimates it because it's reabsorbed. So the question is, since the uh, clearance of creatinine overpredicts the GFR, we can use the clearance of urea to balance the estimate. Okay, so I guess it's not a question. But in other words, if I say I want a more accurate measurement of my GFR, my estimated GFR, instead of just using the creatinine clearance, I can take the clearance of creatinine plus the clearance of urea, okay, and I just average that. And then I could say this is this is going to be a closer estimate because on one hand, I'm overestimating. On the other, I'm underestimating. Let me just average it, divide by two, and then I can figure out my GFR. And this is the preferred GFR in advanced kidney failure um, that we use, okay? So if you have someone with a creatinine over like 2.5 or 3, et cetera, um, this would be a better estimate of GFR and is sometimes used for that. So most importantly, clinical uses of the GFR. So where do you start, right? If you want to know the GFR on someone, you start with a creatinine. You can do uh, creatinine clearance, uh, potentially by doing the 24-hour urine collection. Um, but generally, you would get a creatinine and then you would estimate the GFR using the CKD-EPI equation or one of the other equations, but the CKD-EPI is the recommended one. So that's where you start. You get a serum creatinine, you estimate the GFR using one of the equations. Now, when would you want to actually take it a step further and do an additional test? Remember, if you have diabetics with high GFRs, um, the equation doesn't the equation doesn't work quite as good to estimate GFRs. Specific ethnic groups, is it Asians, pregnant women, morbidly obese, amputees, someone with large muscle mass or on creatine supplementation. In these patients, these equations don't do as good. We might want to consider getting a more accurate measurement, get a 24-hour urine for creatinine clearance to estimate our GFR. And one further question, when would you want to know the actual GFR? The measured GFR. In those cases, um, you would use inulin, right? Or you would use the uh, iothalamate isotope. Um, and when would you want to do that? You'd want to do that in patients where they have toxic dosing with narrow therapeutic indices such as chemotherapy um, or if they're going to uh, donate a kidney or uh, considering transplant, right? Those are cases where you would want to know the actual GFR. And again, if you're calculating the estimated GFR in very small, large patients using any of these formulas and you want to correct for body surface area, you'd multiply by body surface area and divide by 1.73. Final thoughts here. So this is kind of a lot, but we'll just review it very quickly. So the normal GFR depends on age, sex, body size, muscle mass, and many other factors. The normal GFR is between 120 and 130 and can be rounded to 100 for simple calculations. It's very commonly rounded to 100 on, on the wards and that kind of thing. Creatinine is freely filtered across the glomerulus. It's not metabolized or reabsorbed, but remember, it's secreted into the proximal convoluted tubule, and that has many implications of which we talked about. GFR reduction, uh, a GFR reduction implies kidney disease, right? If the GFR goes down, um, we probably will have some, you know, that's associated with kidney disease, and we stage chronic kidney disease based on the GFR reduction. And again, that goes into this next bullet. GFR has prognostic implications in CKD. It's used for staging. Loss of kidney mass is not proportional to GFR due to effects such as hyperfiltration and, and also reabsorption and many other features, right? So if you have solitary kidney, it doesn't necessarily mean the GFR is going to go down. It might go down a little bit, but it's not proportional. The exact knowledge of the GFR is not required in most clinical settings and is estimated, right? We can't use inulin in the wards, can't find the actual GFR all the time. GFR is measured by determining urinary clearance of inulin and other substances. So that's if you're trying to find the actual GFR rather than the estimated. Common methods to estimate the GFR include creatinine clearance, Cockroft-Gold, MDRD, and the CKD-EPI equations. GFR estimating equations rely on serum creatinine as a marker of kidney function. Measurements of cre uh, creatinine clearance can be used to confirm the 
estimated GFR from serum creatinine when there's variations in serum uh, creatinine production. So um, remember, we said those are patients that, uh, like we said, diabetics with really high GFRs, um, certain ethnic, ethnic groups, right? Bodybuilders, all those people, that's when you would want to be more inclined to use creatinine clearance than to rely on an equation to give you an estimated GFR, especially if you're renally dosing a medication. Creatinine clearance tends to exceed the actual GFR since it has tubular secretion of creatinine, right? We talked about that. Uh, cockroft gold equation is used by most labs and tends to overestimate the creatinine clearance by 10 to 40%. And the measurements of urea clearance are useful among patients with severe kidney disease because they underestimate the uh, GFR. And we can average that with the creatinine clearance to get a more accurate depiction of the kidney disease. We'll stop there. Don't forget, if you like Dirty Medicine, Ninja Nerd Lectures, Dustin from Online MedEd, well, get ready for Cognitionis' channel to join all of those. So go check it out now. Become an early supporter. Just search YouTube for Cognitionis. That's like the word cognition with an IS. He's a good guy, worth supporting, lots of high-yield content, and he certainly has our support. <laughs>